Uh, we'll be in uh, Leviticus uh, 26 uh, tonight, and so uh, I'd invite you to turn with me there uh, to, uh, to this chapter as we're, we're nearing the end of the book now. And uh, in Leviticus 26, uh, what we have tonight is uh, one of the classic statements in the Mosaic Law, uh, along with Deuteronomy 28, of the, uh, the blessings for obedience and the uh, judgments for disobedience. And so to put the, the matter quite simply, the Lord calls his people to himself. He redeems them from bondage so that they might be his servants, but they will be subject to the judgment of their Lord if they do not walk in his ways. And that's, we could say, is a succinct summary of what we have here, but let's look to the details. First, let's look to the first 13 verses here of Leviticus 26. As Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I shall give you rains in their seasons so that the land will yield its produce and the trees of the field will bear their fruit. Indeed, your threshing will last for you until the grape gathering, and the grape gathering will last until sowing time. You will thus eat your food to the full and live securely in your land. I shall also grant peace in the land so that you may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land, and no sword will pass through your land. You will chase your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword." Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. So I will turn toward you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will confirm my covenant with you. You will eat the old supply and clear out the old because of the new. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people." I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. And I broke off the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. Now, notice here as, uh, as the Lord lays out here the, the blessings for obedience, notice how here at the beginning of the chapter the Lord calls his people to godliness, requires true piety of them. You'll Here's some, some echoes of, of some of the first of the, the four Ten Commandments here. Uh, he begins by uh, commanding them to avoid all idolatry. There to be no idols, no images, set up no pillars, no figured stones to bow down before them. There to keep his Sabbaths, these, uh, these holy days and times as they were laid out in Leviticus chapter 23 and the, the Sabbath years uh, that were laid out in chapter 25. They were to keep these times. They were to reverence the Lord's sanctuary. This was the Lord's place in which he had given a token of his presence and a means of worshiping him and a means of making atonement for sins. So they were to, to reverence the Lord, to fear him, to worship him as he had commanded. And as we see in verse 3 there, to walk in his statutes and his commandments. And if they did that, if they were to fear God and worship Him and obey Him, then a great blessing would be abundantly poured out 
upon them. And just, uh, just look at the various categories of blessings which would be poured out upon them uh, if they would walk with the Lord and obey Him. In verses 4 and 5 and down in verse 10, there's this note of fertility and the productivity of the land. Verses 5 and 6, you see the blessing of living safely in the land. Who doesn't want to live securely in their own home, in their own country? There would be safety from wild animals and beasts and enemies. Verses 7 and 8, we see that there would be victory over their enemies. Verse 9, they would have fruitful families. And then in verses 11 and 12, the Lord announces the supreme blessing, the supreme one of all. Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. Those other blessings were good, but as wonderful as they were, they pale in comparison to this one, that the presence of God would be with them, and that his blessing would be upon their persons. And... Really, if we have these things, if the presence of God and His blessing is upon us, then we can walk through unspeakable hardship, unspeakable heartache, and still have joy. The rest can be stripped away if only this remains, the the presence of God and His blessing, if He turns His face toward us for good. And isn't that the, the same note that we find in the prophet Habakkuk, in Habakkuk 3, when he says in Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18, Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. He has the presence of the Lord, And obviously he wants the other things, the the productivity of the field and the cattle and everything, but that can be stripped away and he will be joyful in the Lord. But the Lord promises not only his, his presence, the supreme blessing, but all of these other things as well. Great blessings are promised to the nation of Israel here if they would but obey and worship the Lord. And verse 13 reminds them of the redemption that they had already experienced. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would not be their slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. The Lord had already purchased them, had already brought them out and rescued them from their bondage so that they would be his. And he promises great blessing if they would remain his and walking with him in steadfast obedience. But obviously this is only one side of the coin. As the chapter goes on to make abundantly clear, there would be judgments if the nation failed to follow the Lord. So let's look down to to verses 14 through 32. Verses 14 through 32. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all of these commandments... If instead you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinances, so as not to carry out all my commandments, and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. I will set my face against you, so that you will be struck down before your enemies, and those who hate you will rule over you. 
and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will also break down your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength will be spent uselessly, for your land will not yield its produce, and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. If then you act with hostility against me and are unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I will let loose among you the beasts of the field, which will bereave you of your children, and destroy your cattle, and reduce your number, so that your roads lie deserted. And if by these things you are not turned to me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with hostility against you. And I, even I, will strike you seven times for your sins. I will also bring upon you a sword, which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together into your cities, I will send pestilence among you, so that you shall be delivered into enemy hands. When I break your staff of bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven, and they will bring back your bread in rationed amounts, so that you will eat and not be satisfied. Yet, if in spite of this you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me, then I will act with wrathful hostility against you, and I, even I, will punish you seven times for your sins. Further, you will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters you will eat. I then will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and heap your remains on the remains of your idols, for my soul shall abhor you. I will lay waste your cities as well and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your soothing aromas. I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however, I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. And then let's, let's keep on reading in verses 34 through 39 as well. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths and all the days of the desolation while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living on it. As for those of you who may be left, I will also bring weakness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies, and the sound of a driven leaf will chase them. And even when no one is pursuing, they will flee as though from the sword, and they will fall. They will therefore stumble over each other, as if running from the sword, although no one is pursuing, and you will have no strength to stand up before your enemies. But you will perish among the nations, and your enemies' land will consume you. So those of you who may be left will rot away because of their iniquity in the lands of your enemies, and also because of the iniquities of their forefathers, they will rot away with them. This is serious. Notice here this, this oft-repeated line, or at least this oft-repeated general theme. Verse 14, if you do not obey me. Verse 18, if also after these things you do not obey me. Verse 21, if then you act with hostility against me. Verse 23, and if by these things you are not turned to me, but act with hostility against me. 
and verse 27, yet if in spite of this you do not obey me, but act with hostility against me. The Lord's point seems to be to say this, that if you don't obey me, here's the punishment. And if that doesn't get your attention and you still don't obey me, then here's the next thing. And there's, there's a progression here. Things get worse as you, as you move along. And you'll notice that many of the judgments here are precisely the reverse of the previously announced blessing. Blessing for obedience was that the land would be productive. The judgment for disobedience is that the land would be unproductive. As seen in verses 16, 19, 20, and 26. A blessing for obedience would be that they would live safely in their land. Judgment for disobedience would be that they would be scattered among the nations and a sword would be drawn after them, verse 33. Verse 38, we are told that they would perish among the nations and that their enemies' lands would consume them. A blessing of obedience is that the harmful beasts of the land would be removed. The judgment of disobedience is that their children and livestock would be destroyed by the wild beasts, verse 22. A blessing of obedience is that no sword would pass through the land, verse 6, The judgment of disobedience is that the Lord would send a sword to execute vengeance for the covenant. Verse 25, victory would accompany obedience, as seen in verses 8 and 9. Defeat and deliverance into the hands of enemies would follow their disobedience, as seen in verses 17 and 25. Whereas the Lord had said that he would turn toward them, in verse 9, he says in verse 17 that that if they proved disobedient to them, he would set his face against them. There's no neutral or, or medium ground here. There's, there's the blessing or the punishment. And as, as we mentioned, the punishment does ramp up. It ramps up to the point of cannibalism in verse 29. Cannibalism not just in general, but of one's own sons and daughters. A refusal to receive worship in verse 31. Verse 31, the Lord says, I will not smell your soothing aromas. We turn away. Ultimately, the exile comes in verse 33. And the picture of those who may survive the calamity which they would bring upon themselves for their sin, the situation that they would be in would be horrible, as described in verses 36 through 39. The Lord says that, they, that he would bring weakness into their hearts. They would run from a driven leaf. They would run even when no one was chasing them and they would end up rotting in the lands of their enemies. Within the first couple of years that Ruby and I were married, we had been out to to Indiana to visit my family, and we were coming back through Ohio, and it was probably mid to late March, and we had stopped uh, to visit one of the Native American mounds that is there in southern Ohio. And as we were there, we were, we were hand in hand, and we, we came across a, a little snake, and there, there was a scream, and we, we started running. And I think because I was running, there was, a, there was another scream, and we, we kept on running. And I would run when the scream came, and uh, Ruby would run because I was running. And finally, we, we got to the point where we were kind of like, well, why are we doing this? You know, the, the snake, the snake was, was, was way back there. Neither, neither one of us at this point were running because there was, was any danger. We decided, okay, we can, we can stop running. We know at this point that there's, there's no danger. But, but notice here that the part of the judgment for the disobedience that is described here is that the people would be given over to an irrational fear, that they would be running from things that are not dangerous. They would run from the sound of a driven leaf. They would run 
even when there was no one chasing them. In Deuteronomy 28:65, the Lord foretold the condition of the nation in exile by saying, Among those nations you shall find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and a despair of soul. This is, this is a judgment that, that comes upon people. It's, it's not merely the external things happening to them, which were fearful enough, but a despair of the soul and a fearfulness even when there was nothing external to be afraid of. That would be the condition of the people. But meanwhile, the Lord said that the land would get its Sabbath rest, as verses 34 and 35 tell us. The Lord thus anticipates the failure of the nation to observe the the seventh year Sabbath rest that we considered a few weeks ago from back in chapter 25. And indeed, they did prove unfaithful in this regard. And indeed, during the exile, the land did enjoy its Sabbaths. And we're told this explicitly, Second Chronicles 36, 20 and 21. Those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until the 70 years were complete. The picture of the consequences for disobedience are so, so bleak here. And we would ask, why then would anyone want to pursue this path? The Lord had told them so clearly what was going to happen. So clearly what would happen if they walked with him. So clearly what would happen if they did not. Why would anyone want to go down the path of disobedience? Why, indeed, this can only be explained by the stubbornness and sinfulness of the human heart. We can know the consequences or at least be faithfully warned beforehand of what is going to happen if we pursue a certain course of action and still go down that road with eyes wide open regardless of the costs, perhaps thinking that it won't happen to us or thinking that we'll be the exception, perhaps just not caring whether it'll happen or not. We want to do it. This is our way. We're going down this road. We don't care what comes. This is the hardness of the human heart. It is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Our hearts need help. And it is encouraging then to find that this chapter not only contains blessings for obedience, punishments for disobedience, but also the Lord's gracious help and mercy here in verse 40 and following. So let's pick up reading there in, in verse 40, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers and their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies, or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. For the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. 
They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity because I rejected, because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet, in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will remember the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. Now these verses, these closing verses, hold out a wonderful hope for us that even exile and the severe judgment which is recorded in this chapter, spoken uh, as a warning and and uh, was fulfilled in time, even this is not the end. The promise is that if they confess their iniquity, the iniquity of their fathers, if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled, then I will remember the covenant. And the specific covenant which the Lord references here is the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, verse 42. And then... In remembering the covenant, despite all that they had done against them, the Lord says, verse 44, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them so as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. The Lord stood ready to forgive, ready to receive his erring people back to himself. Just think of the, the parable of the prodigal son, right? The father, father was ready for that son to, to come back when he turned and came back to the Father. The picture is the same here. The Lord says, I will not reject them. The Lord stood ready to bring them back. He is the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Not even the rebellion of the people gets the last word. God gets the last word with his people, and it is a word of grace to all who will repent and return, and it is based upon his covenant. Now, while we're here, we do need to look at the language that's used in verses 41 and 43 uh, about the people making amends for their iniquity. If you're using the New American Standard or the ESV, you'll see that kind of language used there in verse 41, verse 43. If you're using the, uh, the King James, you'll see language uh, in those verses appearing more along the lines of accepting the punishment. And so in the more modern translation is translated as making amends. In the, in the King James, it's translated as accepting of the punishment. And thus it appears that there are a couple of different ways in which the, uh, in which the verb can be understood that is used in the original text. The King James uh, seemed to understand it in the what we might call the subjective sense, in which the people themselves accept their punishment in that they agree with God, that they deserve what they have received at his hand. And this is the, uh, the way that the, the Septuagint likewise translated the verse when it said that then shall they acquiesce in the punishment of their sins. There's a sense of agreement, accepting, receiving it from the Lord's hands. Uh, likewise, uh, the ancient Syriac translated it in that, uh, in that vein as well, and some of the Jewish Targums also kind of point in that direction. Now, our modern translations like ESV and New American Standard uh, take the verb in a different sense, in the sense of making acceptable or uh, making satisfaction, something to that 
sense. They are making amends for their sins by their suffering. Now, I don't like that sense so much as uh, the way the, the King James and the older uh, translations took it, but even if one choo- would choose to understand it in such a sense, I think such a sense is possible on the, on the basis of the verb, but even if one would want to go that way, we need to understand it not in such a sense as if we could make up for the punishment that was due to come to us for our sins or that by our suffering we could make our iniquity pardonable. Nothing of the sort. We cannot make amends for sin in that kind of way. If one would incline toward the, uh, the way in which the modern translations took it, we should understand that the making of amends is simply suffering a punishment that is due for sin, not that that suffering is in any way meritorious or uh, earning forgiveness or grace or mercy or anything of that sort. Our suffering of temporal penalties for our sins does none of those things. Forgiveness mercy and grace come from the free blessing of God alone and not on account of anything that we can do by our suffering or repentance even. Those things come from the grace of God alone and our repentance flows from, uh, from the grace of God enabling our hearts to turn from our sin. But again, to, to return to the, the broader picture here that's presented in these closing verses of the chapter is that there is good news for all who would come to their senses, for all who would humble themselves, for all who would confess their sins, there is mercy to be found, and the mercy is to be found because the Lord remembers his covenant. He remains true to his word. Now, just to bridge the gap then from from this chapter to us, this chapter is given to national Israel as part of the the Mosaic Code. We are Gentiles who are engrafted into Israel through faith in Christ, and we need to understand that these specific promises and specific uh, promises of blessing and judgment are given to to national Israel and not directly applicable in a one-to-one fashion to any nation-state, but yet... There are some principles here which can certainly be applicable to individual Christians, to Christian churches, and I think also to nation states. So we don't want to uh, make a one-to-one correspondence from everything here, but I think we can draw some principles applicable to individual Christians, churches, and also to nation states. And the broad principle is that if you walk with the Lord in faith and obedience, you'll be blessed, and that if you do not, you will suffer punishment or at least chastisement. As to individual Christians, the writer to the Hebrews compares the discipline of earthly fathers to the discipline of our heavenly father, Hebrews 12, 10 and 11. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." You see this same note sounded in regard to the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11.32. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. The Lord disciplines individual Christians for, for their good, for their, for their sanctification, to turn them away from their sins, to bring them back to himself 
in humility. As to the, the discipline of churches broadly, we see this in the, the words of our Lord Jesus in Revelation uh, chapter 2, which we read at the outset tonight, where he threatens the church of Ephesus with the possibility of removing its lampstand because they had forsaken their first love. We see it later on, Revelation 3, in what he says to the church of Laodicea, that he will spit them out of his mouth because they are lukewarm. And so sometimes there is corporate judgment that comes on Christian churches. Now, as to the corporate judgment of nations, the Old Testament is very clear that the Lord judged other nations for their sins in addition to the Israelites. The unique covenant status of Israel did not mean that they were the only nation that was subject to national judgment. Just think of Old Testament history. Look at the judgments upon Egypt, the judgments upon the Canaanites, the judgments against the various nations uh, that Jeremiah prophesied against in Jeremiah 46 through 51. These were corporate judgments directed against nations because of their sins. And I can think of no convincing reason to suppose that with the coming of Christ and the new covenant that God no longer deals with nations in a, in a corporate sense like that. When he does deal with nations, he will always deal faithfully with those who are his within that nation. But that doesn't mean that godly individuals will not suffer in earthly ways when corporate national judgments come. I think uh, one of the clearest examples I can think of is, is Jeremiah and the righteous remnant in Judah. They certainly suffered outward and earthly discomforts and different uh, difficulties when Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem. They were godly and righteous people, but they were swept up by the, uh, the judgment that was coming upon their nation. Now, the Lord uh, knew who they were. The Lord certainly did right by them, but that didn't mean that they got off scot-free that, uh, that just because they were righteous and judgment was coming upon their nation. And so all of that to say, we don't want to draw a one-to-one straight line between the nation of Israel and individual Christians today or Christian churches today or nation states of the world today, but there are some noticeable correspondences. It's been said that the history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And I trust that you've been able to hear some of the, some of the rhymes in, in what I've been saying. But the good news that I bring to you tonight is that these rhymes hold true not only in judgment but also in mercy. That is to say, just as the Lord holds out mercy here to anyone who would confess their iniquity and humble their heart before him, the promise of mercy is held out to us today. In other words, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how far down the hole into sin and wickedness you may have gone, no matter how much your sinful sowing has brought you a bitter crop that you are reaping, if you will sincerely confess your sins and humble your heart in repentance and seek mercy from the Lord, there is forgiveness and mercy and grace and restoration to be found. Not because you are great, but because the Lord is faithful to his covenant. He remembers his covenant. We have the blessed promise that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We were talking about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning, that there is always a way forward for those who are willing to repent and believe. And that's wonderful and great news. And we should also 
Notice the language that the Lord uses here in speaking of a blessing in, uh, in verses 11 and 12 when he says, Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. And do not those words direct us to the end of the story, to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, we read this. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things passed away. Obviously, the end picture is much greater than the blessed situation of Israel, were they to walk with the Lord. But we should let that language, though, verses 11 and 12, point us forward to the final blessed state when God will have his dwelling among men, when he will be with us, will dwell among us, we will be his people, and God himself will be among us. This is the blessing toward which we are headed. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would help us, that we would always be humble before you, that we'd be quick to confess our sins, that we would be quick to seek your mercy, quick to repent. Father, we praise you for the promise of mercy, for those who, who humble their hearts. Lord, we ask that we would be quick to do so. We ask that we uh, would be those who would encourage others in this, in this path of repentance, this path of seeking your blessing and your grace. Father, we praise you for your word, and we praise you for your promises and your faithfulness to your covenant. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.